those of you who are new to City Church, we are in the third week of a series that we've been calling Wonder Woman. It's from the book of Esther. And in Esther, we find a true story about a woman who in many ways really was a superhero, who at great risk to her own life stepped in and saved the day for her people, a real-life Wonder Woman. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3. Esther, uh, chapter 3. And I want to summarize, for those of you who are new, what has happened so far in the book of Esther. First of all, the events of this book are set in ancient Persia during the time of the Jewish exile. The Persian king at the time was named Xerxes, or as some of your Bibles may read, Ahasuerus. Now, it's the same man. Xerxes was just the Greek translation of uh, his Babylonian Persian name, which was Ahasuerus. Xerxes is a narcissistic, misogynistic, insecure, impulsive man. And in the first chapter, his wife disobeys his order. He banishes her from his presence. In the second chapter, all of the most beautiful young virgins in his empire are rounded up, beautified, and then served to the king on a platter one at a time. And whichever virgin pleased him the most would be made queen. In other words, it's sort of a B.C. version of The Bachelor. The winner of the contest is a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. But here's the thing. Esther's uncle, a man by the name of Mordecai, who had adopted her when she was young after both of her parents died, told her not to reveal her Jewish ethnicity to anyone. So Xerxes doesn't know that she's not Persian. So shh about that. Now, before we look at chapter 3, there's, there's one more thing I want you to see from chapter 2, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen. One day, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, just happens, just happens to be in the right place at the right time, and he discovers a plot to kill Xerxes. I'll read from chapter 2, verse 21. During the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh Don't those names sound like thugs? Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry, and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And all of this was recorded in the book of the Annals, in the presence of the king. The Annals were sort of like the minutes of a meeting in which they recorded all of the significant events and the decisions of the king in any given day. And the author just sort of slips that last line in on us. But I wanted you to see this because it's going to become an incredibly important part of the story later on. So make sure that you underline that, all right? Now I want to go on to chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all of the other nobles. All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Now, you know, the question that I think many people ask logically when they read this is why Haman? Like, why didn't Mordecai get this promotion? He just saved the king's life. Well, remember now that these events happen after Xerxes and his 300,000 soldiers were defeated at Thermopylae 
by 300 Greek soldiers. And so his coffers after this war have been significantly depleted in spite of the lavish parties that he threw early on. Haman, as it happens, turns out to be an extremely wealthy man. Do you think that had anything to do with his appointment to this position as the prime minister of Persia? Sure it did, of course. And you're going to see that in a few moments. So Haman is the prime minister of Persia. Everyone has to kneel down to him. Look at verse 2. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Now let's put this offense to Haman in perspective. Outside of the king, Haman is now the most powerful person in an empire that spans over three and a half million square miles. Approximately 50 million people lived in the empire, which makes Persia the largest nation in history in terms of the percentage of the world's population. Okay? So at that time, Haman ruled 44% of the world's population, which makes him, outside of Xerxes, of course, the most powerful man in the world. Now, by comparison, the most powerful man in the world today, the President of the United States, only governs less than 5% of the world's population. You see, Haman's a very powerful man, enormous power. Now, with that kind of power... What difference does it make that one poor Jewish guy won't bow down to you? Like seriously, how, how petty do you have to be to be so enraged by such a relatively small thing? I'm just glad he didn't live in the age of, of Twitter. Can you imagine what that would be like? A wealthy but thin-skinned businessman turned politician with a Twitter account? Who could imagine something like that? But Mordecai has gotten all up in Haman's head. He thinks about him when he's in bed at night. He thinks about him when he wakes up in the morning. He thinks about him all day long. He's obsessed with this one poor Jewish man's refusal to bow down to him. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. We saw that. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Wait a minute. Whoa. What just happened? How did this escalate all the way from anger with Mordecai to committing genocide against the entire Jewish race. That seems like a huge leap, does it not? Nevertheless, Haman gets some of his lackeys together and watch what happens next. Verse 7, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is the lot. It's, like a, it's almost like casting dice. They cast the dice in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. 
And then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury. Now, by the way, that's... $2 million of silver in today's economy, which makes Haman an enormously wealthy man. Probably why he got the position as prime minister, don't you think? And by the way, can I ask you something? Anyone else here remember another time that a Jewish man was sold out for silver? Anybody remember that? He says, I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. I want you to just think about how cavalier all of this is. They roll the dice to decide on what day they will kill all the Jews in the kingdom. Xerxes approves the decree as if it were a routine request. And messengers begin to deliver the news throughout the empire. And in the interest of time, I want you to skip down to verse 15. Verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The edict to kill all of the Jews. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Bewildered because if a whole race of people can be wiped out on a petty personal issue, what is the value of human life in this kingdom? And when the value of life is so low, who is really safe? It's the Jews today. It could be your people tomorrow. And by the way, how callous do two political leaders have to be to order genocide and then have cocktails? So what are we to make of this? What is God God saying to us, to City Church, this morning on the last Sunday in January of 2018? What's the transformative power of a passage like this? Because that's what the Bible is always here for. It's to transform us, right? It's not to entertain us. It's not to just pique our curiosity. Not to intellectually stimulate us, although it does all of those things. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to transform us. What is it? What's the transformative power of a passage like this? Well, you know, transformation always begins with the idea systems that we live by. Most of us aren't even aware of most of the idea systems that we live by. But transformation always begins with idea systems. And here's a transformational idea that God wants you to know And he wants you to live by, and through this he will transform you, and through this he will transform the city of Evansville. And here it is. The kingdom of God is radically socially subversive in that it prioritizes the weakest members of society. Now let me just say that again 
For those that are listening on our podcast, I'm just going to say that again. It's kind of a long sentence. The kingdom of God is radically socially subversive in that it prioritizes the weakest members of society. And you would have to admit, I think, that that is a radically socially subversive and transformational idea because most of us are taught from birth in our culture, maybe not directly, but at least indirectly, that the people that we are to emulate, to celebrate, to to fixate upon, to aspire to, are the rich and the powerful, the lovely, the successful, the beautiful, But the kingdom of God, understand, turns all of that upside down. And you may be wondering, well, where in the world? Okay, that's a great point. But where in the world do you see that in Esther chapter 3, Jeff? Well, I want to go back to the question that I asked a few minutes ago, but I didn't answer if you you noticed that. How does the most powerful man in the world at the time, outside of Xerxes himself, how does he let one poor Jewish guy get in his head like this and get so enraged. And then how does it escalate from being enraged at one person, Mordecai, to genocide against a whole race of people? And the answer lies, the answer lies in a clue that was given to us by the the author of Esther in verse 1 of chapter 3 that you didn't notice and I didn't tell you about because I wanted to save it till later. And I wanted to just remind you of what that verse says, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, after these events... King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And you're like, okay, well, where's the clue? Well, you and I really didn't notice it. But to a Jewish person, that word Agagite sticks out like a 50-foot neon Budweiser sign at a Southern Baptist convention. Let's rewind the DVR of the history of the Jewish people for just a moment. And I want to go way back into Israel's history, about a thousand years before the events of the book of Esther. Right? The Jewish people have just been liberated from slavery to the Egyptians. Who remembers how they escaped? Anybody remember how they escaped? Anybody remember? It was by the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. You guys remember that? Okay. Moses, their leader during that time, he writes in Exodus chapter 15, and he talks about the effect that the news of the parting of the Red Sea had on the known world at the time. And he says there in Exodus 15 that all of the world, when they heard about the parting of the Red Sea, trembled in fear. And he says that the world and all of its kings recognized for a moment that it was this king, the God of Israel, who liberated slaves, executed justice, and provided a moral law to the world. For a moment, they recognized it. But however, however, it was only for a moment. Because only weeks later, a people known as the Amalekites attacked the Jewish people without provocation while they were in the desert headed to their promised land. And here's how God himself describes that attack. He says, Deuteronomy chapter 17, he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And on the surface, you're thinking, well, just another, you know, just another one of the many battles in the Old Testament. But no, pay attention to that last phrase. They had no fear of God. In other words, in their arrogance, 
They denied everything that the parting of the Red Sea, the Amalekites did, they denied everything that the parting of the Red Sea had declared, that Israel's God is the king of the world. They rejected him as the arbiter of justice and morality and and meaning, and their attack on the people of Israel was their way of thumbing their nose at God, right? Now, that's a thousand years before the events in Esther. Now, fast forward the DVR just a little bit. Let's move 400 years ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, but before we do that, let me just, one more thing, one more thing. Uh, After that attack, God says to Moses, he says, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all of the enemies around you in the land that he is giving you to possess as inheritance, listen to what he says, you shall blot out the name of Amalek, the Amalekite, from under heaven. Do not forget. Now, that's... Like, that's harsh judgment. Okay, now, fast forward the DVR about 400 years. Israel has grown as a nation. I mean, they now have a king, their first king. His name is Saul. And God hasn't forgotten the Amalekites 400 years later. He commands their king, Saul, to go to war against the Amalekites. And Saul does. And Israel whips the Amalekites. And God tells Saul, he says, now, I want you to execute my justice on them and kill, kill them all. But Saul, stupid Saul, Saul thinks he's got a better idea. And so he spares their king and some of their assets. And God is very angry with Saul about it. He revokes his kingship. And he sends a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel goes in and he kills the king of the Amalekites. Now guess what the name of the king of the Amalekites was? Agag. And let me remind you again of verse 1 of chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Haman, you see, was a descendant of Agag, which made Haman an Amalekite. And see, this is the reason that Mordecai, a Jew, couldn't show honor to Haman. Haman represents a worldview that doesn't fear God because God doesn't exist. A worldview in which there is no higher justice, no no higher order, no, no morality, no transcendent meaning. That's why Mordecai couldn't bow down to Haman. And of course, this is also why Haman was so enraged at Mordecai. He understood only too well why Mordecai didn't want to bow down which is why he wanted to destroy the entire Jewish race, and by extension, God himself. That's what the Amalekites were about. Now, I want to just boil all of this down for you. Why did God want the Amalekites destroyed? Why such a harsh judgment on them? Because listen to me, in the worldview that they represented and that Haman represented, one in which there is a vacuum of justice and values that's set by a transcendent God. Guess who makes the rules in that world? The most powerful. It's the survival of the fittest. In a culture based upon power, there is only the strong and the weak, the rich and the poor, the dominator and the dominated, the abuser and the abused. And in that type of society... Guess who gets the most abused and the most oppressed? The poor, the elderly, widows, orphans, slaves, children, 
And yes, young women, too, often at the hands of rich and powerful men who sexually harass them and then threaten them to stay silent. But the constant theme that runs through the Bible is that God prioritizes those very people. In fact, if you were to read the Old Testament through, you would find that God is always working through and for the wrong people. Like the second son in a society that practiced primogeniture. Not the oldest son, the second son. The barren woman, not the mother. The older woman, not the younger. The unloved woman, not the loved. Or the unlovely woman, not the lovely woman. He's always working through the the wrong people, the people who the rest of the culture and society says are the unimportant, the despised, the forgettable, the neglected, the nobodies. And so you see, this is why the judgment on the Amalekites was so harsh. On one level, the Amalekites and all of their anti-Semitic descendants, including Haman, are enemies of Israel. But on a deeper level, they are enemies of God and the very people that God is the nearest to. So because he identify so closely with the people that they would ignore and oppress. They are an enemy of God's too. And you see, here's, here's where I'm saying that what, what God is saying to city churches is if we're going to realize that vision that is on our wall over here to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond, we as a church, we as a people must unlearn the idea system that tells us that the rich and the beautiful and the successful and the powerful are the people whom we should prioritize and pay attention to and spend our emotional energy on and spend our resources and our time and our prayers trying to emulate. We've got to unlearn that idea. That's what God is saying to us in this passage. Let me ask you something. How many of your prayers are consumed with getting more? More power, more money, more stuff, more success. And then on the other hand, how many of your prayers are consumed with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the weak, and the vulnerable? That's what this is about, this passage. When was the last time you prayed about racism in America? When was the last time that you prayed about sexual harassment? About human trafficking? What God wants to say to City Church this morning is that we are to be deeply socially subversive in terms of the people whom we as part of the kingdom of God prioritize. And I want you to just listen to me on this. Listen, listen. Really important that you get this. The decisive mark of any Christian or any group of Christians who submit to the will and the way of God is the pursuit of social justice for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, and oppressed. That's the decisive mark of any Christian or any group of Christians. It's the pursuit of social justice for the poor, for the weak, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Every time we use our voice, every time we use our influence, every time we use our resources, our prayers, to get in the way of and to correct injustice, whether it's human trafficking, economic exploitation, sexual harassment, racism, human rights abuses, whatever, every time we get in the way of that, we provide a foretaste of God's kingdom to come. And if we're going to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond, we must unlearn the idea system of the Amalekites and Haman. 
their descendant. We must begin to prioritize correcting the issues and the reasons that leave the people that God is especially close to vulnerable and oppressed. Okay, that's number one. That's the transformative idea that God wants to speak to us today as a church. But I have to mention one last point. The only thing in the world that is powerful enough to really break through in a sustainable way the idea system that you have grown up with all of your life that the rich, the strong, the powerful, the beautiful, the successful are the people that we should prioritize. The only thing powerful enough to break through that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's my final point. Only the cross can utterly change the way that you view the weakest members of society. Only the cross. And here's what I mean. You could walk out of here today and you could, out of guilt, decide, okay, I need to value and I need to serve and pray for and care for and work for the weakest members of society. Okay, I got to go do it. I mean, I went to church, right? I feel guilty. In fact, I would argue that's how most people who go to church try to change. And, and I will tell you something, that the reason the reason for that, the reason that that's how most people try to change is that guilt is often the motivation that is preached in many Christian churches. It's my people. It's, my, my, it's the people in my occupation. We're the ones that cause you to be motivated by guilt because that's, that's the motivation we usually try to use. The problem is that the guilt may change your actions on the outside, but it will never cause you to love, to love the weakest members of society. In fact, I will tell you this, you'll come to hate them because of the guilt that they make you feel and the obligation that they put on you. So you can walk out of here with guilt and try to do it. it won't, it's not sustainable. You won't love those people. Now, the, the other thing that you could do is you could walk away from here today and decide that, yeah, that's, see, yes, that's what a good person does. And I'm a very good person. And so this is how I can earn favor with God and get Him to bless me. I will serve the poor. And then He will owe me and He will bless me and... Etc., etc. But you know what? If you do it that way, if, if that's how you go out to serve the poor and the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized, that's how you decide that you're going to deal with them, you will only be strengthening the selfish roots of sin in your own soul. Because listen to me, your motive won't be the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Your motive will be getting God to bless you. You'll be using them to get something from God. So you, you won't love them. Right? It's only when you understand what we celebrated earlier in communion. It's only when you understand the cross of Christ that your heart toward the weakest members of society will really change. When you understand that Jesus Christ became poor for you, when he became, that he became powerless for you, that he was marginalized for you, a victim of injustice for you. When you understand that, when you really get that, you will never look at the weakest members of society the same again. 
When you have bowed before the cross of Christ and declared that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, and that you need the bleeding charity of God in the person of Jesus Christ, it will change your heart for the weakest members of society. Because listen to me, the only way that you can get charity is if you ask for it. If you're too proud for charity, you'll never get it. It will change your heart for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. Because when you see them, you will feel like you're looking in a mirror. You will realize this is what you look like to God. And yet he gave everything to help you. He prioritized you, not himself. Only the cross, not guilt, not moralistic effort can break through the idea system of our culture and transform you at the deepest level of your heart in a way that will give you a passionate, loving desire to do something for those people as Christ did for you. And the only way that that we can be the church that realizes the vision on the wall over here is if we do it through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we do, the the world will see that our God, the King of the universe, liberates the slave, loves the oppressed, and is near to the marginalized. And they will say, let the Lord reign forever. Today, when you go home, take some time this afternoon. There's no football on this afternoon, right? Take some time this afternoon. And just reflect on this. Not, don't do it with guilt. No, no guilt. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not slinging guilt here. Just ask yourself, how much of your time, resources, emotional energy, money, prayer, how much of that goes toward the prioritizing the weakest members of society? And then look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And recognize that you're a charity case. And if it weren't for the bleeding charity of God in Jesus Christ, there would be no hope for you either. Would you bow with me for prayer? It's always the cross upon which you died. And it's only the cross upon which you died that changes us, Lord, at the deepest level. Not guilt, not moralism, only the cross. As we have celebrated what you did on the cross for us today, Lord Jesus, would you allow us today to be changed and would you create in us a love for the weakest members of society, the kind of love that you have for them. Not a guilt-based love, not a moralistic-based love, but a, a genuine love. Lord, for those that are here in the room today that don't know that you died on a cross for them because they're sinners, and it was the only way that they could that they could have a relationship with God. Today, Lord, would you bring them to the just bring them to the cross and you bring them to a place that they rejoice in what you did for them. And Lord, for those of us who, who know what you did for us, who've believed in that, 
you bring us back to the cross today, Lord? And would you change us there? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.